coming to, to help them. And then our witness for this week is kind of a, a, it's a prayer witness. But I wanted to share it with you because it came from Leanne's heart to all of us. And I wanted you to hear these words about how the church is important. And even during these times of disconnection, how the church is still vitally important. So Michael had his cancer surgery this week. And this is the outcome of that when we were talking. Thank you all for the support and prayers you have sent our way. I don't say this lightly, but our family has been blessed with a miracle today. Before Michael's surgery, this scan showed that his first surgery was unsuccessful and there was still cancer throughout his nose. We were told that he had cancer in parts of his face that were inoperable and the best we could hope for was to undergo another surgery to try and remove as much as possible and then do several weeks of specialized radiation in Seattle to try and slow its growth and buy more years. We were told that Michael's cancer was slow moving, but ultimately because part of it was inoperable, it would eventually come back and spread and would likely prove fatal. We just heard back from this doctor today. Michael's cancer is gone. All of it is gone. His doctor doesn't know quite how to explain it or know where the cancer went, but his pathology reports are all clear. Not just clear margins, but clear and free of cancer. We still have a road to travel ahead of us, and Michael still may have to do radiation in the near future. But for now, we are celebrating God's mercy and His ultimate blessing of life. Thank you for being a part of the journey with our family. Even though we are separated physically, we have felt a tremendous outpouring of love from everyone. Let's give God the praise and the glory and the honor and the thanks for that. Truly a witness of God's power of healing presence in our lives. So let's receive all of these gifts from our heads, from our hearts, and from our hands this morning.
you are of God. Thank you for creating us, for adopting us. We are your child. You have provided for us in so many ways. Lord, as you have provided, so now we give back to you. Our gifts, our financial gifts, but the gifts of our very self, oh God. Use us to continue to bring healing to this world, to continue to bring hope in this world, to continue to share your love. We give you thanks, oh God, for all of the ways that you have blessed us. Now use these gifts so that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Kids. Yeah, there are a ton of kids. That is awesome. Any stragglers? Doesn't look like it. All right, head on out. Everybody at home with kids? Zacchaeus is your lesson today. Zacchaeus, wee little man. Zacchaeus. Go ahead and get that thing going at home too. Our Good Shepherd at home Lent bags this week are focused on Bethany and the Mount of Olives. So be looking at those object, looking at that. And our focus object of the week is the wooden cross with the follow me on it. So if you'll look at those things. And our devotional continues to walk through the Gospel of Matthew each step of the way to the cross and the places of his passion. So I hope you're using those items and you find them helpful and useful to you as we gather together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning and center ourselves on his word. Gracious God, we are thankful for the chance we have once again to hear these good words. These seven good words that will carry us through Lent and help us to understand completely what your mission was even there as you're hanging on the cross. Often we go through them very quickly during Holy Week and we only spend a little bit of time. We don't really listen to what you have to say to us at the most important time in your life that you want us to hear the most. So Lord, speak into our lives this morning with the words you'd have me to say given by you in your spirit. And may they speak into our place. But today you will be with me in paradise. And what does that mean for all of us as well? So pour into this time we have now and center us on your word. In Jesus Christ's name I pray and ask on behalf of all of us and the people of God said together, Amen. So this week we come to the part in Jesus' story, as you follow along on version, where he is crucified along with two other nameless men who are called criminals. Translated from the Greek word meaning evil workers or wrongdoers. They are mentioned in Matthew and Mark's gospel where they are called bandits. And in Luke, above Jesus' head is an inscription, a mocking statement fit for one who has committed treason that says, King of the Jews. And now the religious leaders and the crowds 
And the soldiers mock him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you are the Messiah, if you are the Son of God, come down off of that cross. Would you have stayed quiet in that moment being one of his followers? Scoot ahead, Davis. Scoot ahead again. The ifs. To the crowd gathered this man, this bloody thing doesn't look like any Messiah they ever imagined. What kind of king dies on a cross as a common criminal? What kind of king with the power to drive out the Romans gets captured and executed by the Romans in the first place? And what kind of an all-powerful father lets the Son of God endure a painful, humiliating death like this, stripped and whipped and nailed? But what seems more of a question in this week's good words is... Why would anybody on the cross with him proclaim and profess that Jesus is a king with a kingdom that will never end? I don't know where it's at, Davis, because it's not where it's supposed to be, so I don't know how to help. Sorry, buddy. I'm not sure what version's got what. There should be a slide that has the title. (laughs) The Desolate Desert. We're going to get to that in a minute. Why would anybody on the cross with him, would they proclaim and profess that Jesus is a king with a kingdom that will never end? Well, maybe the crowd didn't know who Jesus was, but Jesus knew as he was hanging there and in the hours and in the years before. He knew he had the power to do exactly what they dared him to do. You ever been dared to do something in your life? Probably something bad. I was dared when I was 18 to, to try dip. You know, the stuff you put in your mouth and your lip, you know, and you, you do that. I'm sure nobody's ever dipped in here or at home at all in your life. Oh, I see a lot of eyes turning different places. But when I, when I was dared to do that, I didn't really want to keep doing it. And I knew it was addictive and all those kind of things. So what I did on that weekend was did a whole bag like in an hour just to make sure that I was good and sick and would never want to do it ever again. And it worked. It worked. Dared to do something. I mean, Jesus knew he could free himself from the cross, wipe out the soldiers in front of him in a glorious battle, prove to all the doubters that he was the Messiah, the Anointed One, once and for all, and they would have bowed down and worshipped Him because He came as the King that they expected, like King David. Story over. Everybody gets what they expect. And life goes on. But let's take a flashback in his story to why Jesus already knew what to expect during this temptation. That's the slide with the desert. You remember journeying off the temptation he began three years ago with that public ministry? And Mark tells us briefly 
as we would expect from Mark, in Mark 1, 12 through 13, that Jesus was confronted by Satan, which literally means adversary. But in Luke's version, which we're in now, there's a more detail and there's a slight difference. In Luke's expanded story, the tempter is called the devil, not Satan. Different word. That means slanderer. Who challenges Jesus. And there's that if word again. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. For someone fasting and hungry, the chance to alleviate his physical suffering would be the first test. You ever been so hungry you would have done anything to get something? Well, imagine going 40 days and being in the middle of that 40 days and being hungry. Even then, he was being prepared for the cross. Then Jesus' adversary tries something different. The slanderer says, If you will worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And so now he is tempted with political power to achieve his mission all around the world. Surely the end justifies the means. If you could bring peace to the entire world with the power to do so, wouldn't you do it? Knock a few Romans around at the same time? Again, Jesus holds out so we know that his kingdom, even when he enters triumphantly as a king on Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey, won't be the kind of king that they expect or the king that they want. And finally, the slanderer takes him to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem and says, if, if you are the Son of God, notice the connection here, the adversary says, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command the angels to protect you. Can you imagine that? You want proof? Here it is. People all over Jerusalem would have heard about this. A miraculous sign from God. The kind of, we hear people say all the time that if God would just show up, I'd believe in God in a minute. Well, there you go. Let the angels catch you falling from the very top of the pinnacle of the temple and there won't be a doubt in anybody's mind that you're the Son of God. And they would have worshipped Jesus as the Messiah, no questions asked. Come down off that cross and show us that you're the Messiah, they kept saying to him. But still no takers. And every time his tempter uses Scripture to try to turn him, what does Jesus do? If you're following along in the U version event, write down your answer. What does Jesus do every time that he's tempted? He uses Scripture himself. It is written that one does not live by bread alone, indicating that he puts his whole trust in God. He's going to need that trust. Trust in the Father's plan for what lies ahead of him at this point. 
Worship the Lord your God and serve only Him, indicating that His full allegiance is to God and not any earthly power. He will need that when He is tempted to become the King that they want Him to be. And last, the biggest temptation He will face on the cross to come down and save Himself or let the angels come and save Him, He tells the adversary, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then, we have this bit of foreshadowing in verse 13. Maybe he didn't really think about in connection. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Now, flashing forward, it appears that Jesus' crucifixion is the opportune time to tempt Him. And the tempter this time isn't the devil in the flesh directly. There's no need for that. There are plenty of folks around to do that job. You remember in Matthew 16, 21-23 where Jesus rebukes Peter, calls him Satan? When the disciple says, God forbid that Jesus, you be arrested and crucified. And in that moment, Jesus saw Satan again. And he saw Peter as a stumbling block to his main mission, which is not about what the world wanted, but what God wanted. Divine things, not human things. And so a needless temptation to turn away from the path of the cross is thrown in front of him and he has no time for it. And he doesn't treat Peter very nice about it. You see, in fact, in Matthew, it's immediately after this happens that Jesus tells his disciples, like he's answering Peter to everybody else who's gathered there, if any want to become my followers... Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. After what Peter has just said. Now at the cross, who are his tempters? The crowd, the religious leaders, the soldiers, all are mocking him. And all he has to do is lift a finger to free Himself, Not even that. But with great power comes great responsibility. Peter Parker, my comic book life, taught me that a long, long time ago. And even of the very people on the cross with him, one of the voices of the criminals carries the voice of the adversary and the tempter to his ears. It's very much the same. Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. At two, Brutus? He can't even find friends on the cross who are next to him. But here's the irony of the whole situation that is lost on this criminal. And everyone who's gathered there at the cross that day who's mocking him. The irony is, is that Jesus is exactly who they are declaring Him to be. But in order to show that true identity as the Messiah, Jesus must make the choice not to save Himself. 
You see, he has to choose not to save himself. He must carry the cross to the end. He must refuse to save himself so that he can live into what his name means. One who saves others. And while all this is going on, there is a second criminal there with him on the cross. Now maybe this second unnamed man had seen Jesus when he came in Jerusalem earlier that week. And there in the crowd was shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King. Maybe he was listening to them teach and heal in the temple every day and started to listen to what Jesus had to say before he was arrested. But somehow, somewhere, This man understood or at least had heard of Jesus and what he had done. And maybe he was hoping with all that he had that maybe, just maybe, that Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe he remembered Jesus saying that the kingdom of God was now here among them. And this criminal had experienced exactly the same torture, the same treatment of crucifixion. And this man had even overheard Jesus' prayer that we talked about last week. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. He had just heard Jesus say that to all of these mocking people. There is something about Jesus something about that name that cuts this criminal to the very core, right to his heart. And in the midst of the noise, he has listened to Jesus' words and understands what everyone else does not, that Jesus is innocent and that He is the Son of God. That Jesus really is a King, like the sign says, above His cross. But that Jesus' death is not going to end his kingship or to keep his kingdom from coming. And knowing all of this, this criminal can't help but defend the Messiah who is on the cross next to him. And to his cynical criminal companion, he says this in Luke, Do not fear God. Do you not fear God since you and I are under the same life sentence as this man? The difference is that we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Crazy as it is, this criminal has taken up his cross and decided to follow Jesus while he is on his cross. And in his last moments of his life, he becomes a follower of the Messiah. There is no time to repent of what he has done before. But as we learned last week, he does live literally into what repent means. Remember what repent means? It means to do what? To turn around. He has turned around in those last moments of his life and pointed himself in a different direction than he was going. And then with great intimate devotion in depth, he calls out to Jesus in a way that no one ever did in Luke's gospel. 
He calls the man hanging on the cross next to him by his name. Not a title like rabbi or master or son of David or son of God, king of the Jews or even Lord. This criminal calls him simply Jesus. Say Jesus. Sunday school answer. Good job. You got it. Whatever the question is, just say Jesus. You might get somewhere pretty quick. Calls him Jesus. And maybe that's a prayer as well as a statement of faith. And let me tell you why that is. Because Jesus was a common name in Galilee. When you're out playing and you know your mother called you at home at night and they called out, Hey Jesus, time to come home. Lots of little kids looked up and looked around. There are lots of Jesuses. But the name held great promise for parents and their children. It is actually in the Greek, Eesus. Eesus. Say it with me. Eesus. Say it again. Eesus. Now, I impress your friends when you go places. I know Greek. Eesus. Which is the I and all those crazy fish we used to put on the back of our cars instead of our hearts. Boy, if you had one of those on your car and you did something wrong, whoo! That's what I X O. It's a theta, actually, but Y-E. That's what it stands for. And it comes from the Hebrew in the Old Testament, Yeshua. Or in the English, Joshua. Joshua is Jesus. So Yeshua, Iesos, Joshua, and Jesus all have the same meaning. And what is that meaning? He saves He saves. And so every generation, Jewish parents hoped that a Savior would rise from their children. So when Joseph is told by an angel of the Lord, remember back at Christmas, that was like, you know, a year ago, right? That was a year. Lord, you are to name, he says, you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's a big deal for this Jesus. And when the criminal on the cross calls out to Jesus by name, he's not just crying out his name. He's expressing his faith in the one who saves. See? And we hear that clear when he appeals to Jesus because he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He is professing His faith. But why does he ask to be remembered rather than saved, you might be thinking? Why not just say, Jesus, save me? But once again, there's more to hear than just what's being said. Throughout the Scripture, to be remembered by God means itself a cry for deliverance. That prayer and promise is throughout the Old Testament. God remembered Noah and his family and all the animals in the flood and delivers them to safety. God remembered Rachel, who was childless, and she conceived and gave birth to who? Ooh, that was good. Joseph. I heard Joseph. 
God remembered the cries of the Israelites in Egypt and did what? Remembers the covenant with Abraham and then does what? Delivers them from slavery. And right now, my chronological Bible reading for the year in U version, they are still wandering the desert, building the tabernacle. The Levites are learning what it means to serve God in so many verses, and they're explaining all the offerings ad nauseum they will give to God for their sins. If you make it through Leviticus and keep going, more power to you. But if you look at the criminal's words closer, you will see that he's not requesting anything. He's telling Jesus he believes he is a king. And that his kingdom has nothing to do with criminals and crosses. And that he hopes that he will be saved in the name of the one who saves. That Jesus will forgive his transgressions and remember him, not for his past actions, but for his new heart. Don't we all want that? And that according to Jesus' steadfast love and mercy, the same mercy that Jesus has put on display for all to hear when he speaks from the cross, Father, forgive them. And the same mercy and forgiveness we saw last week when we saw the prodigal son come back and the father has a huge celebration after welcoming him. And it says in those verses, and the son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And how does Jesus answer this criminal asking to be remembered? Today you will be with me in paradise. Say that with me. Today you will be with me in paradise. Say it one more time. Today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say kingdom. He says paradise. So what is Jesus' paradise? Well, probably most of us think of heaven, living with Christ in the afterlife. But paradise here is, is much deeper than that, actually. It comes from the Persian word for, what do you think? Forest or garden. Garden. Guess where else in the Bible this word is used? Right in the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden. That's where this word is used. It's often described as the king's garden or the creator's garden. An intimate relationship with God based on complete trust the kind of relationship that God always intended for human beings. Revelation uses paradise images to represent the state of perfect and lasting life with God. Revelation 20, Revelation 21.4 says, It is a place where God's home will be with human beings and death will be no more. And the Gospel of John doesn't mention paradise per se, but you see it throughout. As Jesus is arrested and betrayed where? In a garden. 
He's laid in a what? A garden tomb. When Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb on Easter morning, she mistakes Jesus for who? The gardener. You see where John's going? And in a meeting, in meeting him, she walks in relationship with the resurrected gardener. So paradise can be described as the fruit of being one with Christ in the presence of God. One writer wrote, when Jesus tells the criminal next to him he'll be in paradise, he is alluding to God's garden for the image of a new creation. Beginning today, he says, you'll no longer be a criminal defined by your crimes. You will be a new creation. Isn't that a wonderful promise? That you're going to be a new creation. That the old is gone. It's passed away. The new has come. It's the same promise we have of paradise. So this experience of God's presence begins today for those who place their trust in Jesus. That Jesus makes it clear again and again that the promised salvation is not just for us to get our ticket punched and then wait for the heavenly flight to take off and for our boarding pass to be called. Salvation begins now. The salvation is here and now. The kingdom of God is both present and yet to come. That's what Jesus means when he said to his friend Martha in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? John Wesley, John Wesley once said, Salvation is not a blessing which lies on the other side of death. It is not something at a distance. It is a present thing. A blessing which through the mercy of God you are in possession of since Jesus' words reflected you are saved and you have been saved. But remember me is not just about me. It's about all of us. Prophet Isaiah speaks to a promise from God to the people who thought they'd been abandoned and remembered. And he says these words, and I love the end part of this from Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Think about that imagery together. But our journey to our cross, is, the cross is not complete if we focus too much on Jesus' incredible gift to us and not on the call to take up our cross and give ourselves to others. Jesus remembered the confessing criminal. We can't forget about the others that are around us that have never truly experienced the love of God. I mean, imagine what it would be to feel like in your life, and some of you have probably felt this, if no one ever reminded you that you are a child of God. I didn't grow up in the church. My family didn't go around saying that kind of stuff all the time. That you matter. Much less treated like you were made in the image of God, the Imagio Dei. Imagine how that would change your view of life, of your identity. Your relationship with people around you and how you would act and what you would do. 
Then as one writer says it this way, imagine the life-changing and liberating effect of learning the good news, that you are God's beloved, that God will never write you off. The nails that pin Jesus' arms to the cross testify to God's promise. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And if you can imagine all of that and begin to grasp what Jesus' words from the cross to the criminal are, that are to the lost and to the least and to those who feel alone and those who carry guilt and crushing shame, that today we can all participate in that paradise, an abundant life of the kingdom that will never end. I came to give you life and to give it abundantly. And all of that and more is in those eight words. So let us go and receive the invitation for ourselves and then go out and extend the invitation to everyone to be with Him in paradise. He wants everybody around that cross to be with Him. All we have to do is ask. And if they listen to His words like we listen to His words, they will find that same steadfast mercy and forgiveness. And it's up to us to help each person have the opportunity to hear those words. Today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. As we continue to walk our, walk our way through the Psalms, we look today to Psalm 22. And I'm a little bit off script. This is still Psalm 22, but this is from the CEV. I don't know if it's up on the screen, so it might not matter if it's off script. But as we go into these words in this Psalm, the Psalm writer's asking for protection from, from the Lord. And then in verse 22 or 23, he says, All who worship the Lord now praise Him. You belong to Jacob's family and to the people of Israel. So fear and honor the Lord. The Lord doesn't hate or despise the helpless in all of their troubles. When I cried out, he listened and did not turn away. When your people meet, you will fill my heart with your praises, Lord, whether those people meet in this building or at home online. We will fill my heart with your praises, Lord. And everyone will see me keep my promises to you. The poor will eat and be full, and all who worship you will be thankful and live in hope. Everyone on this earth will remember you, Lord. People all over the world will turn and worship you, because you are in control, the ruler of all nations. All who are rich and have more than enough will worship you, Lord. Even those who are dying and are almost in the grave will worship you. In the future, everyone will worship and learn about you, our Lord. People not yet born will be told, the Lord has saved us. In the Word of God.
I just love those words and how they build on each other. So the song just continues to build in its energy. It continues to build in its massive space. It continues to build. And even have to hold back because you know, we're still holding back some. I definitely wasn't singing as loud as I possibly could, though we are going to be letting singing happen. But when you get to that top, and it's like when you just, when you, it's like you're speaking for every person in that song, everywhere. It includes yourself, but it includes everybody else. You just keep saying those words in every category and everything, and it just keeps going on. That's the steadfast mercy and grace that Jesus is talking about from the cross. He could be singing that song out to all of us. And so thank you, God, for the inestimable gift of salvation that is given to all that trust in the name of the Lord. And we thank you that the way into the paradise of God has been reopened through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that my sins, past and present and future, have all been forgiven simply because I trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord Jesus, remember us, we pray. Remember us now today. and Remember us when we come into the fullness of your kingdom. Thank you for the encouragement of your response to the thief on the cross, the promise of paradise, the promise of your presence, that we will be with you forever and that with you there is no forgetting. And let us now tell those on the crosses around us that good news as well. And everybody said together, both here and at home, 